This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, it will be my pleasure to host Rebecca Bryant, Professor of Cultural Anthropology at Utrecht University, and Mette Hatay, the Senior Research Consultant at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. We will be discussing their splendid co-authored book, Sovereignty Suspended, Building the So-Called State, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. Sovereignty Suspended is based on more than two decades of ethnographic and archival research in the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, an entity that looks like a state and acts like a state, but that much of the world says does not or should not exist. The monograph traces the process by which the north portion of the Mediterranean island of Cyprus began to emerge as a separate but unrecognized state-like space following the the violent partition of the mid-1970s. The authors excavate the contradictions and paradoxes of life in a de facto state, arguing that it is only by rethinking the concept of de facto statehood as a realm of social and cultural practice that we we will come to understand the longevity of such states and what it means to live in them. Dr. Bryant, Mr. Hatay, welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you for having us. Hi. (laughs) As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking about the genesis of Sovereignty Suspended. How How did your separate intellectual trajectories lead you to the writing of the book, and how did the process of co authorship operate in this case? Shall I start? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, all starts uh, around 10 years ago, you know, uh, with a, a curiosity uh, regarding uh, these meta narratives existing around the Cyprus problem. Yeah, uh, But in these meta narratives, Turkish Cypriots uh, or uh, this entity in the north usually is like a uh, made up. Uh, <laughs> A kind of entity with no actorship of uh, Turkish Cypriots. So it was like imposed by Turkey according to some, or it was uh, created by Turkey according to some, or it was, uh, uh, you know, a nationalistic uh, way of founding a state. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, we said there's something else. So in this, uh, I mean, Turkish Cypriots, we, we believe that uh, they're the, uh, somehow. 
uh, one second uh, because my computer writing is going beep 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 and Rebecca is panicking. <laughs> well, because it's going beep beep. Yeah. Okay, now. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, we believe that uh, I mean we felt that the Turkish Cypriots were part- partners in the in this crime as well. Uh, uh, so uh, we started. Uh, going back to archives interviewing people uh, uh, and uh, try to see their uh, agency uh, in this uh, uh, endeavor uh, in a way mm-hmm. yeah but I, i mean i think though that uh, maybe maybe your question is really trying to get at something a little bit different i mean this is sort of the intellectual genesis of the project but um But thinking about more the intellectual trajectory and what led us here, mm-hmm. um, I actually began research in the island in the early 1990s. You know, as a as an anthropologist, and and at the time was more interested in um, the competing nationalisms on the island, which you know at that moment was was a very hot topic. Nationalism studies was was very big at that moment, and and um, and so I you know, came to the island, spent almost three years here and, um, and did at that time spend quite a lot of time in the North. Um, and, and, you know, one of the, the most striking things in the island at particularly maybe at that moment, because at that time, the, the checkpoints dividing the island were closed. Um, the most striking thing was really the, the differences that, that one felt experience going between the two sides of the island and and the you know the perceptual differences that one experienced um, when going into this unrecognized state and and how so much of that non-recognition was so very present in everyday life and I, and I think that at that time I didn't really have the right questions to answer to ask about that um, and and it took me quite a long time to to begin to get at those questions and uh Mete and I happened to meet and start working together at a moment when I when I think I was getting more ready to think about those questions and and at that moment I was really interested in um the the relationship between um the between governmentality And sovereignty. So I, I framed it more in terms of, in sort of Foucauldian terms, you know, in, ter- in terms of the the governmentality of the North, how how a, a state that is not recognized still exercises control, and um, and you know, Mete uh, was at that time uh, had had a long history of of activism in the North as well, and he was he was I I met him actually. First, um, as an as more of an activist, um, mm. as or as an activist researcher, I suppose. Um, but I I knew of him first as as an activist uh, in the in um, various uh, peace re- peace organizations and um, and also uh, at that at at the time that I was doing research, he was very active in. Um, explaining a, a particular United Nations plan that was on the table uh, to the people. So he was on TV a lot and, and doing all that, exp- that that kind of explanation. So anyway, we 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 met. We began to to discuss these various 
paradoxes about uh, life in an unrecognized state. And that's really how, how the project began. Thank you for a lovely introduction. I mean, it is safe to assume that most listeners would only have a general idea of the island's recent past. Would you care to offer a, a brief historical overview of the events leading to the establishment of the de facto state of Northern Cyprus? Uh, yeah, I uh, try to be brief because I usually lose myself in details. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main <laughs> clashes we have now and again. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, Cyprus uh, had its own uh, uh, post-colonial uh, period, which ended up as a Republic of Cyprus, founded uh, uh, by, interestingly, not its own people, by three guarantor states, Turkey, Greece, and the uh, United Kingdom as a compromise. Uh, so the, the those uh, nationalists within the island, Turkish and Greek nationalists, who were aspiring uh, for different uh, goals, uh, Greek Cypriots were aspiring to to be united with uh, Greece, and Turkish Cypriots were aspiring to have a division in the island and have a double enosis, as they called it. The uh, north will be part of Turkey, uh, south will be uh, part of uh, Greece. Uh, uh, so uh, that ended up uh, as Republic of Cyprus as a compromise uh, based on consensual system, uh, mm-hmm. functional federalism, you could call it, uh, without territories. Yeah, because then uh, both communities were spread around the island. They didn't have uh, uh, places where the uh, you know Turkish Cypriots were in majority or something like this. But Turkish Cypriots were numerically the minority, around twenty percent of the island, but they were dispersed around the island. So in their imagination of having a taxim the division, they need the space. And uh, in uh, Turk, uh, knowing this, the Greek Cypriots were also opposing any kind of uh, uh, positive discrimination uh, handed over to the Turkish Cypriots in order to run the uh, Republic of Cyprus uh, as a concessional uh, partners. Uh, so. Uh, in '63, the republics lasted only three years. Uh, again, the communities went back to their initial goals, uh, and uh, the Republic of Cyprus was taken over by the Greek Cypriot majority. Turkish Cypriot uh, sort of locked themselves up in military enclaves, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, uh, the that isolation or this ghetto period. Uh, uh, went on for until 68. Uh, until 68, there was a siege around Turkey Cypriots in different ghettos. And uh, there they established their proto-state in, in that sense. Uh, we had another articles and uh, work on describing that more uh, explicitly how they, uh, in a way, uh, prepared the administration, the governmentality of the entity mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the enclaves, uh, managing themselves somehow, yeah? And so it was an uh, experiment for them, uh, for the entity that they were going to find, uh, found uh, after 74 division, which was the uh, result of the coup d'etat of the Greek Cypriots who who were not happy with Makarios, who uh, 
uh, and backed by the junta in Greece. They wanted to oust Makarios from the power, and Turkey used this as a pretext and came and divided the island. Yeah? Uh, so we, now we have uh, the Republic of Cyprus functioning uh, as a Greek Cypriot state, in reality, de facto Greek Cypriot state. Uh, and in North uh, after the population exchanges uh, during the war and after the war, uh, you have the ethnic Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, which was established as first as a federated state of uh, uh, Turkish Cypriots. And in 83, uh, after the failure of the negotiations, they proclaimed it as a separate state uh, and so so forth. So uh, but what we tried to... Um, that's the summary of the, the history, mm-hmm. so uh, we can go to <laughs> other... <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I, I would just say that uh, one thing Mete didn't mention um, is that when we were writing the book, I mean, this could be interesting to, to you or to the uh, listeners. When we, were, for, when we first began writing this book, one of the things that we were really uh, focusing on was actually this enclave period because, you know, it was really a kind of rehearsal for statehood. And, and it was very interesting the ways that um, Turkish Cypriots established this state within a state in dispersed enclaves throughout the island. And we started writing initially about that, also because Mete was a child during that period. And so and when we first started writing, we, we also included uh, quite a bit of memoir in it. And uh, we, we ended up um, having to sort of cut some of that when we, when we shifted the focus more to the post-74 period. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they, we, we were also... Um, looking at these different uh, these different formations, these different uh, moments of political uh, where Turkish Cypriots attempted to to um, realize some kind of political agency, mm-hmm. and how that began first in the 1950s in a kind of proto state uh, based on organizations, and then in the in the 1960s this state within a state, and then this uh, de facto entity after 74. And the concept of operatic state uh, drives much of your analysis. You argue that northern Cyprus has been caught in an aporia, a tension between its well-defined attributes of statehood and the uncertainty of its international status. Could you perhaps elaborate on the concept of apparatic state and explain how you have mobilized it to dissect the ambiguities of de facto statehood? Yeah, you know, um, um, unrecognized states are often referred to as states in waiting, um, and it that that of course uh, suggests that they are entities that are that are there, right? They have they occupy a space in you know they they are places, but they are. Um, they're they're waiting for something. They're waiting to to become states. They're waiting to acquire statehood, right? Um, and we, we, when we began to focus much more on this this issue of uh, of what it's like to live with these de facto entities, um, we we saw that this idea of of waiting, of being in a kind of limbo was really pervasive in everyday life. 
and it created a lot of uncertainty for people. So, in fact, that's belirsizlik. You know, the uncertainty is the word that that you hear on people's lips all the time, and and people are always, you know, waiting for normalization. They want their lives to be normalized because they they see that this that this um, limbo that they're in is not uh, is not normal because you know there's a kind of division between um, the a, a waiting for a solution um, and being in a kind of well what's usually called a frozen conflict right mm-hmm. and then on the other hand a life going on so. Time itself seems to be it seems to be divided uh, into these two different sort of layers. Where on the one hand you have the you know the the lack of recognition that creates this state in waiting, and on the other hand, um, everyday life continuing. And so that kind of contradiction uh, is is what we were really trying to to pry apart. And we we thought about it in many different ways. Um, and particularly, we, you know, we began thinking about liminality. Mm-hmm. But liminality didn't quite get at this contradictory effect, because liminality seemed to suggest that um, they were just, they were just suspended, right? I mean, that's obviously the title, sovereignty suspended, <laughs> right? But 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 not everything is suspended because what we're saying in the book is that you have this this contradiction, you have this this division between, on the one hand, sovereignty being suspended, but on the other hand, life going on. Uh, can I add something here? Uh, the people tend to mix uh, the anxieties in the north uh, regarding uh, the suspension, and also uh, there are a hell of a lot of status anxieties <laughs> at the same time. So what they Uh, gain during this uh, period, uh, uh, they f- they are frightened that uh, uh, in the future they might lose it. So that, that there's this constant uh, worry of becoming something, but also uh, the fear of losing something, uh, possibility of losing something. So uh, that's the, these are the contradictions con- constantly shaping their everyday life. But if we come to the issue of the, the aporetic state, um, you know that that concept is really is really intended to to get to precisely this kind of um, uh, division that I was describing between, on the one hand, uh, a, a sense of everything being suspended and 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 being in waiting, and on the other hand, life going on, um, because we we. We take that idea of the aporia actually from from Derrida's understanding of it, um, where he describes the aporia as something that is impossible and yet should be possible, right? It's 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 he so he talks about it as the sort of border that you should be able to cross and that you can't, and um, so we we wanted to to look at what happens when you have something that on the other, on the one hand as we describe it there is real it's real because it's real in the sense that other people recognize it as real yeah um i mean that we focus on the term de facto quite a bit because the de facto contains a lot of that paradox in other words the very fact of calling something de facto on the one hand says that you recognize it as something that's real it's fact right but on the other hand you're denying that fact that fact <clears throat> so um 
So it's it, it, it contains that paradox within it. And so what we're focusing on is is precisely that, that, you know, that that there is something that other people see as real. And yet that thing is not realizable. Yeah. So we're 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 focusing on 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 the one hand, what people identify as being real. In other words, when you look at a de facto state, you see something that's real. People see something that's real. And, you know, in the literature um, to date, uh, or prior to to our book, I guess um, the uh, the focus had been on basically kind of trying to list all the things that make a de facto state a state, right? So people in the literature, there's a small you know literature on on unrecognized states, and in that literature, there's usually an attempt to to sort of list the the, the qualities that that would um, make these states states, yeah. So it could be things like controlling territory and and things of that sort. Um, but those those um, <clears throat> those definitions are often problematic because then it requires every single state to sort of fit the definition. And and what we focused on instead was the fact that we already know this, right? We we can already point to these things and say, okay, that's a de facto state. So what we really wanted to get at was what we recognize there, and, and but then why it is how it is that on the one hand it, these things are acknowledged, but on the other hand they're not internationally recognized, and how that paradox plays itself out in everyday life. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's a wonderful segue into my next question, or a pair of questions. In part one, you show how Turkish Cypriots constructed the North as a separate space and how a de facto territory emerged as a perceptible entity, something that can be seen, experienced, uh, despite all efforts to deny its existence. Could you say a few more words about the social practices of delineating the physical space of de facto statehood, erecting borders, inscribing the community into the landscape, replanting physical bodies. And in addition, would you describe how the international order's hegemonic realism, as you call it, has worked to alter North Cyprus invisible? Okay. Yeah, I, I'll just say one or two things, and then I'm going to let Mete give a few examples here. Um, but yeah, we we divide the book into three parts, right? I, I won't go into, you know, everything that's in, in all these parts, but, uh, but I think it's, it's important to, to sort of acknowledge these three parts because they're, they, they're all about different forms of this aporia. So the first part that you're talking about is, it talks about this aporia of perceptibility where the very practices that Turkish Cypriots tried to engage in after 1974 to make themselves more visible ended up making them invisible. Yeah. And, um, and that 
is very interesting because what we're saying basically there is that on the one hand, um, Turkish Cypriots created this perceptible entity um, through practices of uh, of controlling territory and uh, creating borders and uh, becoming more Turkish. Yes, symbolically and so on. Um, and uh, and on the other hand, as they were doing that, they were trying to make the, they they were using symbols of Turkishness. And so in the process of using those symbols, uh, they they actually created even more the perception that it that it was not they who were doing this, but rather it was Turkey. So maybe you want to give some examples. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, the minor differences that you uh, play on uh, in order to Uh, show the differences between communities. So Cypriots, yeah, the language is the obvious one. So, uh, uh, but the reflection of the languages was on the landscape as well, changing the signposts, uh, the alphabet, you know, the the Greek alphabet disappeared from North Cyprus. Uh, So, uh, for example, most of the village... uh, Mosques didn't have uh, minarets, uh, but immediately there were a lot of minarets appearing, uh, especially in the border areas where the Greek Cypriots can see. The huge flag uh, everywhere. There's one uh, which is the biggest flag, they say, uh, carved on the landscape uh, on, on the mountain uh, with ch- the charcoal. So uh, slogans and everything. Of course, uh, while the, they were becoming more Turkish in in order to become less Greek or <laughs> less uh, <laughs> uh, influenced by Greek. Uh, Greek. They were never Greek, but I mean, to cleanse the influences of uh, the Greek culture on them, they become more Turkish. <laughs> but when they become more Turkish, they became irrelevant because they were like part of 80 million now, uh, in a sense that uh, the, they needed difference uh, against Turkey somehow to sustain their uh, uh, separateness. So the actual uh, guess for uh, self-determination against Greek Cyprus turned a guess for independence against Turkey in that sense uh, uh, to uh, demand uh, respect from Turkey for their uh, cultural uh, differences. Uh, even, uh, I mean, there were minor differences with the Greek Cypriot, but even with Turkey, it was even more minor, minor. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there, there was this... Uh, yeah, uh, collective narcissism uh, born out of that uh, with with these uh, narratives uh, with these uh, uh, differences uh, and uh, yeah, uh, so it reflects itself in everyday life and in the politics. Now you have a lot of tension with Turkey. Uh, a lot of parties are the the federation became even more uh, need for some uh, people to. Uh, save their uh, cultural uh, identity in that sense. Turkish Cypriots became invisible within this larger Turkish national corpus, the corpus of 80 million, as you put it. Uh, But what is the work that the international community or the so-called international community did to alter North Cyprus invisible through what you see as hegemonic realism? Right. So... um... 
it, well, the argument about hegemonic realism, of course, mm-hmm. is goes throughout the book. But um, I mean, it, in sum, that that's the idea that uh, that we take um, partly from from James Scott. Scott. That yeah, that um, that what uh, that that we can understand hegemony um, by the way that it creates uh, what is. But that it separates the possible from the impossible, or the real, the the realistic from the unrealistic, um, and so we it, essentially um, we're using hegemonic realism to describe the way that um, certain futures were always seen as unrealistic. Um, how, for example, the idea of having a a separate state was for a large part of the community always seen as an unrealistic option um, because it was not one that was that was permitted by the by the international community. So what was permitted was federation. Um, and so the you know we quote quite a lot of politicians in the book talking about uh, federation as as the realistic option, right? Um, that anything else is not realistic. And, but that realism is this kind of hegemonic realism. In other words, it's the international community that's defining that as realistic, right? So, um, so that, that argument is, it, you know, it, it continues throughout the, the book because we're, we're, that is really ultimately, you know, how this aporia is defined, how it, com- how it, how it uh, is shaped. I mean, the, the latest uh, example is uh, mm-hmm. uh, the current government is the nationalist government who's, uh, who, who believes that is, they're going to get the Republic of uh, TRNC recognized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, uh, this new uh, president keeps uh, voicing uh, uh, demand for recognition and uh, how it is possible to get the state recognized. So the former president uh, two days ago said to him, what you're saying is uh, actually putting you in uh, more trouble (laughs) to be perceptible uh, because uh, that's not possible and you are running away from the uh, the, the politically correct version of the uh, Cyprus problem in that sense. So uh, Actually, saying that tactically we have to say we want federation in order to become more Turkish Cypriot <laughs> or acknowledge as Turkish Cypriot. In so, order to be visible. <laughs> visible, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So all these paradoxes continuously uh, plays out. Yeah. So, so in the case of the of this uh, invisibilization, it, it is it's it's this hegemonic realism that defines what is perceptible, right? That defi- that defines certain. Uh, Persons, entities, ideologies as being um, acceptable and therefore perceptible, uh, you know, uh, and others as not. Um, so, federate. So, federation is because it's the acceptable and realistic solution, right? Uh, it means that those who espouse it can have interactions with the international community, right? Uh, the international community acknowledges them and so on. But any anything else is is considered to be um well n- not perceptible but it, but in a particular way as well so um actually we we talk 
a little bit um, about what I well, I, I have another uh, book that I'm I'm writing at the moment, and, and where I talk about this a bit more. But we in the, in this book we talk a, a little bit about the what I what we call the puppet pirate dilemma, mm-hmm. right? Um, in other words, that Turkish Cypriots for the most part have been cast um, in, in and represented at, either as puppets of Turkey, right, and therefore without any kind of will, or pirates, a pirate state, right, which is also outside the international community, you know, kind of pariah. And and in either case, because they're not sort of within the fold of the international community, right, they, they are not really visible. And don't, and, and in neither case do they have, well, in one case, in the case of puppets, they have no will. And in the case of pirates, they seem to have too much will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I particularly enjoyed the argument you present in part two, where you address the manners in which, among other things, the Turkish Cypriot community enacted a state for itself. Uh, So how did the ordinary citizens' expectations from their de facto state shape its nature in the early years of state building? Yeah, I mean, so... This is very interesting because what we're describing there, um, is, well, this is where we get into the sort of apery of recognition, as we call it, <laughs> apery of recognizability, pardon, um, where, where we're talking about um, the, the ability to be recognized as, as a state, uh, not recognized necessarily in terms of interna- in the, the international order, but to be recognizable as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there we're talking about the very things that may would make them recognizable mm-hmm. as states also made them unrecognizable in the sense of a of uh, of the international order. So mm-hmm. um, so there, for example, there and this is something that that state builders at the time were were, mm-hmm. were really aware of. And when I say state builders, I mean that that collection of elites uh, elites. Political parties and so on that were that were instrumental in building this state, and they were they were constantly balancing um, what they were building on the ground against what they anticipated the international order would allow them to do. Right, so so this was uh, this was always in in the forefront of their minds, and and so it's um, what we what we're doing there is is describing um, how. For example, um, they would debate in the the um, parliament, you know, the, uh, things like um, whether or not they could um, expropriate certain properties, mm-hmm. uh, and what in this case expropriation would mean, and um, where, for instance, certain certain factories were being expropriated and turned into a kind of collective enterprise, um, state-run enterprise that employed a lot of people. Uh, but then there was, the, the, at one point, there was a debate in the parliament but that where what the, the, um, a representative from the main leftist party um, was protesting that they were considering selling certain of these properties, and he was talking about them as, um, as state resources and so on, or common resources. I can't remember the exact term that was used. 
And, you know, a businessman who was also in the parliament came back and said, well, you know, um, you act as though these have always been ours. But in fact, you know, it was just circumstance that the Turkish army went through one place and not the other. And now these 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 factories ended up in our hands. Right. So so um, there there's there were these interesting um, there was this interesting awareness of the contingency of yeah. what they had 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 in their hands, but also of the the fact that ultimately it could change because they were also trying to buffer themselves against potential uh, legal challenges uh, and, and trying to figure out how they could maneuver around those potential cha- legal challenges and so on. The last part of the book um, is based on extensive ethnographic research, uh, mainly from the 1990s, and it deals with the apori of agency. Uh, there you ask how North Cypriot citizens have lived with, contested, and manipulated their own so-called state, right? How has this dynamic relationship between victimhood, helplessness, this uncertainty, and desire for agency, be that individual or communal, informed the book's understanding of sovereignty? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I'm going to say one thing again, and then I'll mm-hmm, let, mm-hmm. let me say, I give a couple of examples. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we, uh, when we were doing the research for this book, one of the things that we really struggled to explain um, was precisely what we ultimately get to in the end, uh, which is the ways that Turkish Cypriots in everyday life um, use a certain kind of helplessness and victimhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and of course we, you know, we, we wanted to be able to explain that in, in a way that would, um, that would be, you know, faithful to <laughs> the people that we, that we interact with and so on. So, uh, so we, this is one reason that we had, that we gave this long historical introduction to it, but essentially what we're getting to there again, goes back to this issue of hegemonic realism. And and the ways that um, it, perceptibility uh, on the part of the international community is so tied to representing oneself in particular ways, and um, and so there, you know, there's uh, there are there are ways in which um, one can sort of portray oneself as a, as a, as a victim in order to accomplish certain things um, within such a, within, within such a system. Um, Mete, maybe you want to give an example of this. <laughs> no, I mean, victimhood has, uh, has an economy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and as, as I tried to explain earlier on, now we have two perpetrators, uh, Greek Cypriots and Turkey as well. So depending on the situation, if uh, it's Turkey demanding something from Turkish Cypriots, and because Turkey, when they do uh, financial aid, send financial aid to Turkish Cypriots, now it's increasingly more and more they attach to austerity measures in order to transform North into more neoliberal uh, state. Uh, 
so uh, of course Turkish Cypriots resist that, uh, but they cannot openly resist it, but they employ different tactics. Uh, so immediately they play the victim, the, the government's changes, they do a lot of uh, as if, uh, uh, they do a lot of uh, exaggerations uh, and things like that, as Scott nicely uh, talks about these hidden scripts, yeah, when a lot of pretenders uh, go. Same thing with the, uh, the relations uh, with the Greek Cypriot uh, side. Of course, uh, it's not just Turkish Cypriots, but the Greek Cypriots also uh, use these tactics as well. The Turkish Cypriots, of course, uh, they not being able to uh, draft a strategy because as as we say they are on uh, everything is suspended or they are on limbo most of the time it's uh, saving the day kind of uh, uh, tactics they employ uh, in their survival uh, uh, with their survival instincts so that becomes uh, quite a performative uh, show <laughs> if you sit and start watching their uh, uh, tactics uh, uh, and we try to sort of give some examples in the book uh, uh, actually Rebecca's uh, coming book has more uh, <laughs> ethnographic uh, work on this kind of performances uh, uh, yeah Rebecca. Yeah. I mean so by apparatus of agency um, I mean we what we're really trying to get at is, is how you know how one how you become a political agent um, or become agentive mm-hmm. only to the extent that you're you're actually kind of handcuffed, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, but also we're we're trying to get at um, what Mete was kind of suggesting, uh, which is this idea of being um, kind of sandwiched between mm-hmm. um, between two powers between uh, the Republic of Cyprus on the one hand and the Republic of Turkey on the other. And, um, and how within that context, it's, it, it's often a matter of uh, finding the right tactics to use to, to acquire a certain, kind, a certain limited agency or, or constrained agency in relationship to um, you know, your, your attempts to pass through one door or the other. Um, this is a wonderful point, uh, if I may. This basically leads us back to the question of sovereignty. And, and you disaggregate it from the territorial nation state, allowing the reader to see sovereignty as this constrained capacity, as, as, as a capacity of getting by uh, within the international order. Uh, could you make that link between your analysis and, and, and the concept of sovereignty as, as such? Yeah, I mean, you know, one one thing that we again, you know, struggled with as we were writing this, struggled to 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 really articulate, uh, and 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 it only kind of came out at the end, and then we had to go back and do some revisions <laughs> to, to to make it fit in. But um, is is the this idea that really uh, we articulate most clearly, I guess, in the in the introduction and the conclusion, but I think is clear throughout. Um, this idea of sovereign agency. In other words, that um, ultimately looking at what Turkish Cypriots have struggled for um, and wanted historically, it has not been a territorial state, not per se. 
um, that, I mean, t- there have been at different points um, nationalist uh, leaders and nationalist parties who say, oh, you know, we have to get recognition for the TRNC. But again, this is really quite contingent. I mean, the, you know, it's, it's really because they're stuck, right? And they need something to happen. And Federation isn't happening and nothing is happening. So they've got this entity. So let's get it recognized. You know, that that's really um, what's what's pushing them more than anything else. Um, but if you look at it historically, uh, what Turkish Cypriots have worked for is actually um, a political equality and self-determination. And they haven't really been so concerned um, about the form that it takes. Right. So so this is why we we talk about um, sovereign agency as um, as as something that is, of course, perhaps not even realizable, right? It's, 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 it's something that, but it's a way of having political voice and political legibility. In other words, the, being able to, um, to uh, realize one's communal desires, yeah? And, and, um, and of course, this may be, you know, more aspiration than, and, than something that's realizable, um, but it, it is, we are arguing, um, much more the driving force here than some desire for territorial sovereignty. I mean, which uh, also, yeah, uh, Mr. Katai, please. Yeah, the, I mean, it, it has layers. We call it the double minority impasse as well, in a sense, uh, the, the existing situation in Cyprus, like the Turkish Cypriots are frightened of the majority Greek Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots are frightened of the Turkey. So, uh, and there's this uh, interlinks uh, uh, between these layers. Uh, so uh, Turkish Cypriots are right in the. Uh, so sorry, uh, it's underneath, but they can collaborate with the one on the top <laughs> uh, very easily. So uh, all these uh, uh, maneuvers are the politics uh, in the everyday life. Uh, you know, uh, if Turkey intervenes too much, then uh, Turkish Cypriots become the victims of Turkey. And they, they try to sort of uh, get help from uh, uh, Republic of Cyprus or uh, from uh, international community, uh, in a sense. So all these dual identities and dual positioning is constantly the way to survive. Uh, in, in, it, again, in, this sort of constrained agency. Yeah, constrained agency, yeah. And, and here, statehood basically appears as a tool and not a goal in itself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it ultimately, ultimately, the you know, because it was not historically what Turkish Cypriots were after, um, not per se, but somehow they got stuck with it, you know? <laughs> because you know this is this is what's available, right? We don't have many you know non-state forms in which people can realize some kind of political or uh, sovereign agency. So, so it means that they've been constrained to to this state form as well. But also. It- create them a kind of conformity. So now they don't make concessions less than uh, a constituent state or something like this. So they want their territory uh, where they can be, as they call it, the masters of their own country. 
in that sense. And the, uh, the only way to realize that is through federation. So the, this hegemonic realism is also uh, telling them that even if you want a state, you have to have a partnership with Greek Cypriots in a federal uh, uh, solution. So... <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. And how can the study of North Cyprus illuminate uh, or what can it teach us about the fact of statehood as a global phenomenon? In other words, do you hold your findings to be applicable in other cases the world over? Um, well, yes. I mean, I, I, we think that they are applicable. We've We've done some preliminary research in Apasia and Transnistria, and we see a lot of comparisons there. Um, we would say, I think that, uh, you know, one difference between um, between the Cyprus case and certain other cases like Apasia, let's say, or, uh, or Transnistria even, um, is that it was it is a space that was created ex nihilo right it didn't exist before it didn't there is there isn't this long history of turkish cypriots living in this particular space right uh there they had to create it and and there had to be ethnic cleansing and so on in order for it to to become the way it is now so that's different from some place like apasia but Oh, there, there was an ethnic cleansing. There, there was ethnic well. cleansing, but there was but a the claim had a territory, yeah, imagined yeah, territory. Yeah, exactly. But so that is that is different. But I mean, it, but looking overall at the at this idea of the various kinds of aporias that Turkish Cypriots experienced, like uh, their uh, aporia of uh, of perceptibility, the fact that they're invisibilized as actors. And so on. I mean, this is this is very much applicable in, I would say, all of these other cases where, for example, in Apasia or uh, or Transnistria and so on, you you there's this perception that, um, well, especially in Apasia, Russia is really the actor, mm-hmm. and yeah. the Abhas don't have any role, right? Um, but you go to Apasia and you see that they are they definitely have agency, right? <laughs> I mean, it, there there is certainly. Um, they have certainly played a role in in creating their own history, but of course, it's it's a small community, and this is also something that these these unrecognized states have in common that yeah. they they tend to be very small, uh, meaning that they're on the one hand very tightly knit, and on the other hand, politically, economically, and militarily weak. You know, so uh, so they're often dependent on some other patron state, state or whatever. Yeah, a patron state. But they also have very enclavist uh, attitudes uh, yeah. in that sense. Uh, I mean, they always have to have a fear, uh, uh, sort of uh, build a wall against a fear so that they keep their members inside, uh, like Douglas's... Uh, Mary Douglas's, uh, Yeah, Greek yeah. group uh, theory uh, yeah. suggests. And, and this is not conducive to uh, building a pluralist society or 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 is it well i don't i'm not sure that um that ultimately pluralism is, is the problem i mean it, it, i'm trying to think about apasia as well uh well it's of course there there are specific elements that may create issues in terms of pluralism Um, and others that don't. Uh, I mean, to be more specific, if you're thinking about Cyprus, you know, or thinking about Abhazia, it's, it's 
really quite similar. I mean, here in Cyprus, it's, uh, you know, the, the issues have to do with Greek Cypriots, but also with Tur- people from Turkey, right? But anyone else can come. <laughs> there, there's no, there, there, there's not really any kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, objection to, to to most others. Well, increasingly, uh, you know, with the lone students. Okay. Well, there's yeah, in a, there is. I mean, there are, there are various kinds of ethnocentric uh, sort of uh, attitudes that have, that are much that are actually quite similar to similar. Well, semi xenophobic attitudes in the rest of Europe regarding immigrants, yeah, yeah. but. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think the real issue, though, with with um, the the enclavism that Matteo was talking about is has to do with um, with the ways that it um, it can actually kind of distort your perception of reality uh, or perception of the outside world. Um, And the the in other words, um, you know, it may be difficult to, uh, well, uh, it, for example, you don't necessarily have um, any kind of drive to participate in various kinds of international organizations. Standards are, are limited to, um, you know, what's available within the group. In other words, you're not aiming for like international standards. You're, you're limiting yourself to, uh, let's say, the standards of your own group and so on. So, so there's, it, it, it's very insulating in that sense. Uh, it it's both protects you and also can, could potentially harm you in the sense that you may not be prepared to go out into the world <laughs> in yeah. a way. You know? Goldfish in the pond. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Splendid. Splendid. Finally, where has sovereignty suspended led you as as researchers? What are you currently working on? Go ahead. I mean, <laughs> shall I or you? <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't want. <laughs> we are still working together, though. I mean, <laughs> and we are still married, <laughs> even though we had some ups and downs with the book <laughs> disagreement. <laughs> uh, I'm now. Uh, Increasingly more working on the return uh, refugees and also incomplete returns, I call it. Uh, like uh, Maronites, uh, these are the third uh, minority living in the, the third community living in Cyprus. They've been living in Cyprus for 1,000 years, but they are overlooked and everything. And they were from the north. Uh, they had four villages. One of them is, is still inhabitable. Uh, the other three are military zones. And there is a huge uh, sort of work on opening these villages back to them and so and they want it as well they say they don't mind living under any uh, administration because uh, increasingly they're disappearing in the uh, republic of cyprus uh, uh, control areas because uh, they are christian and they are catholic and they are orthodox but uh, they keep marrying each other and so they're disappearing so if they come and live in the uh, non-christian area they believe that they can sustain their <laughs> identity so you have these other ironies uh, in that sense so uh, they want to come back to their villages and uh, they, 
I'm observing and uh, stock taking all these uh, efforts and also the opening of Varosha, which is a ghost city in Cyprus, got stuck in the in the not in the buffer zone but just beside the buffer zone. It's a military area. Thirty thousand people were displaced from there. It was the most uh, commercial area of Cyprus. So there's. Uh, decision to open Varosha back to its owners. That means 30,000 Greek Cypriots would come back and live under Turkish control. So so it's a new experience, a new experiment in a way, not experience, but new experiment uh, regarding uh, the Cyprus uh, issue. Uh, so I'm observing this and trying to sort of uh, make a sense out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'm also involved with Mete mm-hmm. in, in uh, the Barosha uh, <clears throat> project in a way. I, I have my own uh, interest in it, having to do more with the ways in which um, the people are negotiating how Barosha will be used and how it will be reconstructed. Um, but I've uh, I've I've been I have several different projects that I that I'm sort of uh, you know at the moment trying to kind of decide among I I actually in in the process of, of finishing a book manuscript that we mentioned a couple of times um, that's keeping me from moving on to anything else at the moment <laughs> um, and that's a book um, that is is actually about again about unrecognized states but it's about unrecognized states in the context of globalization. Um, so how does globalization affect these entities that are not supposed to be globally connected? And um, it affects them a lot, actually. So uh, I'm looking at what changes within that context in terms of the ways that people perceive their state, the ways they perceive their so-called sovereignty, and so on. Um, so so in a way, it's a continuation of our joint book. And in fact, it, it came out of that. I, <laughs> I, I mean, in, well, to be honest, we... We, as we were writing this book, ended up with sort of three books because at one point um, we reached a certain stage in this writing and Mete got busy and I sort of took off and, and wrote 200 pages on my own. And that, that ended, ended up being this, this other manuscript. So I'm, I'm working on revising that at the moment and then I'll be able to move on to other things. <laughs> I, I cannot wait to see what, what comes next out of this creative, productive uh, cooperation of yours. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Bryant, Mr. Hatay, it was an immense pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for joining New Books in Eastern European Studies. Thank, Thank you very you. much Thanks for having us. Thank you.